0: The podcast you're about to listen to was taken from one of our live programs. If you don't already listen to Radio Maria Live, you can do so on DAB in selected regions of the United Kingdom or by downloading the app. Just search for Radio Maria Play. All the Radio Maria podcasts are conveniently stored on this app. We'd like to thank all our listeners who support us with monthly donations so that we can continue to be a Christian voice by your side. To find out more about becoming a monthly supporter, visit www.radiomarieengland.uk. listening to Credo on Radio Maria, a program that nourishes you in your Catholic faith. Hello, Father Richard Allensworth.
1: Yeah, oh, good afternoon. How are you?
0: I'm very good. Sorry, I didn't pronounce your name quite so well there. There's some, uh, something no one else does. Should... alnsworth like
1: a... That's the one.
0: Um, and uh, how are you today?
1: I am terrifically well, thank you very much. I really mustn't grumble, despite the horrible weather. <laughs>
0: That's almost covertly grumbling. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we've been going through the book of of Matthew, haven't we? We have.
1: Um, And we have reached chapter 16, which is a crucial point in the narrative. Shall we crack on?
0: Mm, I'd love to. Yeah, i look forward to it very much.
1: So, chapter 16 is, uh, though not, I think, numerically, it is... Actually, the halfway point in the gospel, the halfway point in the story. Uh, and here, uh, St. Matthew is following the structure of St. Mark. As I've mentioned before, in St. Mark's gospel, we would be in chapter eight, uh, which is the halfway point in Mark's gospel, there being 16 chapters. St. Matthew has put a little bit more of Christ's teaching up front in his gospel, so that's why. The halfway point is at slightly uh, more than halfway through, if that makes a certain kind of sense. So what do I mean by saying it's the halfway point? Well, hitherto, the question has been, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do people understand him? And what is the correct understanding of his identity? It is in chapter 16, that we get that very, very famous saying of Saint Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, uh, a saying which Christ uh, obviously approves of, blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So it's the right answer. Um, but from then on, we turn from the question of who is Jesus, He's the Christ, the son of the living God, to the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah and the son of God? And the answer we are given immediately is uh, the son of man is going to be taken by men and killed and all that. And on the third day be raised. And Peter very famously immediately rejects that. So the second half of the gospel, then, is about Christ leading the disciples to understand what it means for him to be who he is. So this is an absolutely, as I say, crucial turning point. Let's unpack all of that, shall we, in a little more detail. The chapter begins, actually, that the turning point is, is halfway through this chapter. The chapter begins with a sort of culmination of that theme of the human opinion and divided response about Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So we've had this question, who is he? They're now saying, show us who you are. And Christ's response effectively is, I've been doing that all the way through the gospel, but you don't pay attention. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. In the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Interesting, isn't it that the same thing works uh, in Judea as, as in England? You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. On one level, this simply means if you're competent to read the sky, you should be competent to read something so much more obvious and more reliable, namely the signs that the Messiah gives of his own identity and his mission so it's partly about the sort of deliberate or at least culpable blindness and foolishness of the pharisees and the sadducees those two great authoritative groups of uh jewish religious leaders but of course there's also an overtone of something that's going to come a lot later in the gospel foreshadowed here, signs in the sun and the moon and the sky, the signs of the end times. Um, We'll get that in chapter, oh, 20 something, I can't remember, Um, this sort of apocalyptic stuff about the destruction of the world. And Christ is just subtly foreshadowing that here to show that the times that Christ is ushering in by being who he is, are indeed the end times we get a little bit more of that at the end of this chapter and he goes on to say an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign an evil and adulterous generation possibly overtones here of the exodus that generation that wandered in the wilderness, that refused to believe and trust in the signs they were given by God through Moses and Aaron, uh, a uh, a generation that tempted God, put God to the test in the wilderness, and thus proved itself unable to enter, undeserving of entering into the promised land. Christ is telling us not for the first time if you want to enter into the true promised land you have to pay attention to the signs that I give you have to follow me I am the true Joshua who will lead you into the promised land no sign will be given to this generation he says except the sign of Jonah That's actually a second time that Christ has used that expression. I think when we came across it before a few chapters earlier, I expatiated on the meaning of the sign of Jonah. So I won't go into that again. I'm sure uh, the listeners can go back and find the relevant podcast if they want to and listen again or invite me to their parish to give a talk on the book of Jonah, which I would be very happy to do.
0: I don't but, usually jump in, but you're gonna have oh, to ex- You're gonna have to explain the meaning of that word expatiate, Father.
1: Expatiate. Um, I beg your pardon. Holding forth uh-huh. is I suppose what expatiating, Tim, is what I do. <laughs> so I am not going to expatiate on the sign of Jonah, but I would be happy to do that at another time. The last time Christ mentioned the sign of Jonah, Matthew offered his interpretation that it's about the resurrection, but Christ leaves that unsaid at this point. Then he left them and went away, we read. Something of a dramatic sort of almost a curtain down kind of moment. It's as if he's definitively said, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, I've tried with you and it hasn't worked, and that's it. As far as I'm concerned, we are through. They will continue to attack him, but he will no longer give them any signs. Indeed, the very next thing he does is attack them um, Who the disciples. Uh, when the disciples reached the other side, that would be of the water, they had forgotten to bring any bread. This is a really weird bit of the, of the gospel, I have to say. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They said to one another, is it because we've brought no bread? And becoming aware of it, Jesus said, you of little faith, very common expression in St. Matthew's Gospel, why are you talking about having no bread? Honestly, I don't know exactly what to make of this. Clearly, Christ and the disciples are talking at cross purposes. And it's almost as if You know, when he uses what is very obviously a metaphor, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're so obsessed with eating and so worried about the fact they don't have any food with them that they forget it's a metaphor and start saying, oh, yes, we haven't brought any bread. What are we going to do? Jesus is worried because we haven't brought any bread. We're going to be in trouble for not providing the catering. Do you still not perceive, Christ goes on to say, Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Which is interesting because that was bread. But of course, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, which I spoke about last time, Although, in a certain sense, it was about literal feeding, it pointed beyond itself, as I explained, to the ways in which Christ feeds us through his teaching and in the Eucharist, the way in which Christ's gospel is given both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so within that context, what is... The yeast, or some translations have it, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, this is a reference, I think, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which um, is around the time of Passover, when every Jewish person would get rid of every last bit of yeast from their house. Normally, Jewish people have no problem with eating leavened bread, but for that particular week of the year, leaven, yeast, becomes unkosher. It becomes unacceptable. And so this is a a symbol for that which is unacceptable beyond the pale, but also something which is infectious, which pollutes, a pollution that spreads just as yeast spores in the air or uh, other, you know, molds and bacteria can infect things. This is how people make sourdough bread, I believe, but I really don't know. I've never done it myself. I think it was very fashionable, wasn't it, two or three years ago when we were all making bread. But the point is, Christ sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who've refused to recognize who he is, who've refused to correctly understand and accept the signs he's given, he sees them not just as wrong, but as dangerously wrong, pollutingly wrong, infectiously wrong, damaging the purity, nay, the identity of the holy people of God that under Christ, God intends to bring into the promised land. Hence, he repeats himself, beware of the yeast of the pharisees and the sadducees then they understood that he was i had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread duh, but of the teaching of the pharisees and the sadducees there ends the first chunk as it were of matthew chapter 16 perhaps a good time for a little light music
0: yes indeed um if it must be light it shall be bach and i will play a very lovely edition of um, Bach's first cello suite, which is uh, performed by Yo Yo Ma in a forest. Um. listening to Credo on Radomirror. Mirror, that was Yo-Yo Ma playing the first of Bach's cello suites. We've been going through the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel with
1: Father Richard Owensworth. Father Richard, would you like to continue? I definitely would. We are at chapter 16, verse 13, one of the most famous passages. It's the Gospel reading for uh, the Feast of Peter and Paul and the Feast of the Chair of Peter, and and I think it comes up once every three years on a normal Sunday. Very well-known passage, uh, St. Peter's Confession. And it takes place, we are told, in Caesarea Philippi. That itself is worth noticing. We are in a Gentile district. Caesarea, of course, named after uh, Caesar, both Julius and Augustus. Um, Augustus took his name from his adoptive father, Julius. I don't think it's really relevant that Caesar means hairy, but if you're interested, then that is what Caesar means. Um, But obviously it's an extremely Roman name, Philippi after um, the father of Alexander the Great. But actually it was a a very much a Herodian city, Caesarea Philippi, a big and important gentile city and yet the conversation that takes place is extremely jewish who do people say that the son of man is christ says here not for the first time christ is clearly referring to himself and yet he's referring to himself by this expression son of man which has all sorts of apocalyptic overtones um, referencing back to Daniel chapter 7 and to the apocalyptic visions of Ezekiel in the beginning of that prophetic book. The Son of Man is a quasi-messianic character, uh, somebody who lives in heaven, shouldn't be down on earth at all, but here he is, the Son of Man in the person of Jesus Christ. So who is he? A very Jewish answer comes there. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And that answer, of course, is not wrong. He is one of the prophets. He does stand in the prophetic tradition. Something is emphasized even more in St. Luke's gospel than in the others, but it's there in all of them. But clearly, Christ is so much more and he invites them to make that confession having been showing them for the last 16 chapters the same signs that he's been showing the Pharisees and the Sadducees but Simon Peter their spokesman he's picked it up he says you are the Messiah the son of the Living God what does this word Messiah mean Uh, translated into Greek as Christos. It means one who is anointed. Famously, the the first person in the scriptures to be referred to by this word in the Hebrew Bible is actually Cyrus, the Persian king who overthrew the Babylonian empire. He's the anointed of God. So of itself, it simply means somebody that God has chosen, somebody that he's anointed either literally or figuratively, in some sense. But by the time of Christ, it has come to mean, in particular, somebody who is going to be the one person who's going to be God's agent in ushering in the new age, the age to come, the messianic age, the time in which the people of God will be vindicated and their enemies cast down. We might even call it, in some sense, the end of the world. And Simon Peter has now recognized this is that man, Jesus Christ is that one Messiah. Very often, but not always in the Jewish imagination, the Messiah was a Davidic King, one of the descendants of David, not always. Indeed, sometimes the Messiah was not even a human being, but was an angel. Other times, it was a human being, but one who'd sort of been living in heaven until the end, like the Son of Man, or like, well, possibly Melchizedek in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He seems to be the Messiah. In one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Archangel Michael is the Messiah. And in at least one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's two messiahs. So it's not as simple as Jewish people were expecting a messiah they thought it would be like this. Then along came Jesus, who sort of fulfilled those expectations, but at the same time shattered them. What Jewish people were expecting was very um, multi level, multifarious, if you will. Some Jewish people, no doubt, placed great hopes in the future coming of a Messiah, whereas perhaps the Sadducees who were sitting pretty as things were, and the Herodians probably never thought about it from one year to the next. But nevertheless, when you hear of the Messiah, you have some kind of sense of what kind of thing we're talking about. And the son of the living God, that could simply mean a royal figure, a messianic figure, an important, a righteous man. We, of course, come to realize both reading through Matthew's gospel, and then later on in the history of Christianity, and we come to explore the meaning of Christ, that when we call Christ the Son of God, we mean so much more than that expression, Son of God, ever was thought to mean in the time that Christ was around and in the Old Testament period. He is, in fact, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, He is the one human being who is son of God by nature and whose natural sonship with God enables us, who are his brothers, to be the adopted children of God. Christ affirms, Simon Peter's answer, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Notice he says, my father, not our father, laying claim to that unique sonship. And he goes on to say, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Of course, Simon Peter's already been referred to as Peter, but this is in fact the story of Christ giving Peter his name. In the Old Testament, there are several instances of either God, or at least in one case, Moses, renaming people for a specific salvation purpose. So Abraham becomes Abraham and Sarai becomes Sarah, Um, Hosea uh, becomes Joshua. And there's a rather nice tradition that the Y that was left over when Sarai became Sarah was the same Y that God sort of kept in heaven until he needed to give it onto the front of Hosea's name to become Joshua. That's a tradition in the rabbis. We are not bound to believe it, but it's a fun idea. Anyway, Peter, of course, means rock. Uh, It means rock more clearly in Aramaic, Kepha or Cephas, because in in Greek, rock is normally feminine, but Petros is masculine because Peter's a man. So it kind of means rock, it kind of means rocky. On this rock, I will build my church, a reference perhaps to the dome of the rock, that is to say, the rock upon which the temple was built. A reference possibly also to the rock that followed the people of Israel through the wilderness and gave them living water. There's a nice tradition. I just read about this today while I was preparing for this broadcast. A tradition in the rabbis that the temple mount, that rock upon which the temple was built, was it actually the capstone, as it were, of the entrance to Hades. And that might explain why we then have the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Does this mean the church built upon the the rock of Peter's confession of faith will always protect the world against the powers of hell and death? Or does it mean more that um, the church is going successfully to be able to invade the territory of Hades. The gates will be burst open compared to the power of this rock. Those gates are flimsy and we can sort of smash them in and do a raid on death and hell. I rather quite like that sort of imagery. Also worth noting, this is the first time that Christ makes reference to my church, ecclesia, fairly common Greek word that means the assembly. For example, the democratic assembly uh, that ruled Athens for for a period was known as the ecclesia. Um, In the Old Testament, the assembly of God, uh, the gathering of the people. It doesn't have that sort of very churchy meaning, but it's interesting that Christianity used that word ecclesia rather than some other word to understand itself. I think perhaps because Jewish people um, use the word synagogue for their assemblies, really, ecclesia and synagogue more or less mean the same thing, but maybe because Jewish people were using the word synagogue, Christians decided to go for a different word and use the word ecclesia, which we then have as church. Anyway, he moves on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is actually a a reference to Isaiah 22, when God, through the prophet Isaiah, overthrows the sort of equivalent of prime minister and replaces him with someone else. And it's worth noting, actually, that this is, of course, it's about authority, It's about the unique authority of Peter as the prince of the apostles, but it's also about succession. That passage in Isaiah is not just about who's in charge, but it's about God's power to grant a succession of authority. And in the same way, I think we can see that Peter is being given an authority that he will be passing on to, well, let's face it, popes. And on that um, very traditional and authoritative note, shall we have another little music?
0: Yes, that's, and I'm choosing another piece of Bach. Um, Excellent. Nothing but not, con- nothing f not consistent. Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. And uh, this one is sung by the Cathedral Singers. Jesus, joy of man's desiring. What a lovely piece. You're listening to Credo on Radio Maria, a program that nourishes you in your Catholic faith. I really love this scripture that we're, we're going through, Father Richard, Um, one that I've spent many, many a day um, meditating on in my entrance into the Catholic Church.
1: Yes, it's good stuff, isn't it? And uh, it is. It is a really important passage. Of course, you know a lot of Protestants will and sceptical biblical scholars will object that all of this was invented after the time of Christ by the early church, putting it into the mouth of Christ in order to justify the, the Petrine ministry. There's no evidence whatsoever for that. It's it's simply um, speculation. Um, if wishing made it so, as it were. Um, But uh, if we don't read the scriptures and take them at face value, then we are on a very slippery slope, I think, to inventing our own scriptures. So there it is.
0: Indeed. Before we go on, I just want to remind listeners that if they want to ask a question, they are welcome to do so or to um, maybe take us off on some kind of tangent into the Greek meaning of this or that word. will be fun. The number to dial is 01223375564. 375 375-564. That's 01223 375-564. I meant the Greek meaning of this or that word in St. Matthew's Gospel, just in case that wasn't clear.
1: <laughs> yeah, although I mean, if people want to ask me about Greek... I'm always happy to talk about (laughs) Greek. We can have a long and interesting conversation about the optative mood if people are interested in that.
0: And you wonder why no one calls in.
1: (laughs) All right, so moving on. Um, Where were we? Yes, so we've had Peter's confession and Christ's naming him Peter and giving him the keys of the kingdom. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This, in some ways, is the turning point, or it's it's the beginning of part two. Now we know who Jesus is. What does it mean that Jesus is who he is? We discover that the answer is, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And I think we need that verse to interpret the previous verse, which is that command to be silent. The point is, until you know what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, It is dangerous for you to know that he is the Messiah because you will have expectations of him that are mistaken. You need to know that for Christ to be the Messiah means suffering, death, and resurrection. And until you recognize that, it doesn't do you any good, could even do you harm to know who he is. So Jesus doesn't say tells, He says, shows his disciples from that time on. Precisely how he was showing them, what kind of showing this was, we don't know. But we do know how Peter initially responded to it. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. I'm reminded of the, the bravado that Peter shows at the Last Supper, for example, when he says, you know, oh, don't worry, Jesus, I won't let them kill you. I'll die for you. And Jesus, of course, says, you you won't even, you won't die for me. You won't even admit that you know me. This bravado that Peter shows is completely misplaced. And when that bravado leads him to reject the necessity of Christ's suffering and death, he is not just showing bravado. He is actually an instrument of the devil. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. That reference to a stumbling block, of course, takes us back to the name Peter because Peter means rock and a stumbling block, the Greek is scandalon, which means a stone that somebody might trip over. Um, The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone we also think of. This is that notion that Christ's crucifixion is folly to the Greeks and scandal to the Jews. Oh, Tim's putting his hand up, Tim.
0: Okay, so I think you just answered my question then because so the the scandal on yes. root scandal
1: oh yes, absolutely, yes ah. yes, yes, so scandal it means literally something causes you to trip up, but hence something that causes you to stumble on the metaphorical way on the path of your life, so you're scandalized by something, let's say the clergy misbehaving causes the faithful to be scandalized. So they trip over, as it were, on their Christian journey. It's to put an obstacle in someone's way. Exactly. So and Peter is is becoming an obstacle to Christ's um, to Christ's path to Christ's the road that he's taking to Jerusalem and to the cross. And he is, as he says, Thinking not as God thinks, but as men think.
0: So and Jesus is basically saying to him, don't don't be that kind of rock in this.
1: Don't be that kind of rock. Be a solid rock that people can build their faith on, that I can build my church on. Don't be one of those annoying little rocks that people trip over when they don't notice them in the street. Or one of those even more annoying little rocks that gets under your, your soul in your sandal. And you have to keep stopping and knocking it out. Don't be one of those. So there's more than it is not sufficient to allow Christ to be Christ. Jesus then told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, it's worth noting at this point, Christ has not explicitly spoken about how he is to be killed. But now he says, take up your cross. We're so used to that expression. We don't realize what a shocking thing it is to voluntarily put that cross beam of crucifixion on your back and follow Christ along the path that leads to that horrific, humiliating, agonizing, degrading death of crucifixion. So how much more shocked would they have been when they heard not only that Christ was going to be killed but that he was going to be killed in this very Roman way remember he's still saying this in this very Roman city he's going to be killed in this Roman way far from the messiah leading the people in victory over their roman oppressors he is going to die as a a victim not even just a victim, you know, the great, powerful enemies of Rome, they would be taken in a triumphal procession, marched into Rome, and then throttled at the end of the triumphal procession. It's the, it's the nothings that are crucified, the ones who, who don't mean anything. The, the Romans aren't even going to treat him as a would-be messiah. They're going to treat him as a joke, as something less than human. And that is what the Christian has to be willing to be. That's the humiliation. The Christian has to be willing to accept if he or she would be a follower of Christ. For, he goes on to say, those who would save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life. That last little expression reminds us, I think, that, well, we have nothing to give in return for our life. We receive our life from God as pure gift. If it were not for that pure gift, we would be nothing. So how could we possibly pay God back for the gift of life? And the answer is we can't. I'm reminded of that line from the Christmas hymn. You know, what could I give him? Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would play my heart part. But what can I give him, give my heart. All we can give in return for our life is our life. And even that is not really a repayment, but Christ now promises, if we are willing to lay down our lives for him, That is to say, offer the whole of our lives. Doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom, though it might. Um, Just yesterday, a lady in my parish scripture group was telling me she's from Nigeria. She was telling me about a priest that she knows in Nigeria who was killed by um, Muslim freedom fighters, so-called, in the north of the country. People are being martyred for their faith every day. But all of us are called to be martyrs at least in the sense that we make of our whole lives. However, they end up an outpouring of the fullest uh, in return for the life that we get, which is not just our life in this world, but the life of the world to come, because Christ has told his disciples not only that he is going to die, at the hands of men, but also that he will be raised. And the point he wants to make that we must understand is that the resurrection, far from being the undoing of the crucifixion, is its completion. They are two sides of the same coin. And so he goes on to say, for the son of man is to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I say, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. An intriguing verse, which we should definitely talk about, but perhaps not before we've had one more piece of music.
0: Yes, indeed. So I have found a version of 2S Petros, um, not the one that I was initially looking forward for, but... uh, Version nonetheless. So here it is. And when we get back, we'll continue speaking about these things. I have a little question of my own. To Petro by Vidor. You're listening to Crater on Radio Maria, and we've been going through St Matthew's Gospel today. We are on chapter 16, and I um, found it very interesting some of the things that we have managed to uncover, the stones that we have turned over. Indeed, um, I'm going to save my question. I, I did have a question, but I think I need to kind of think think it through a little bit before I kind of just put it out there.
1: Um, so I'm going to I'm going to let you continue. Okay, shall shall I expatiate on verse 28? Please do. Um, uh, I was just saying to Tim while we were listening to the music that um, I and some colleagues have written a whole book on Matthew 16, 28. In a certain sense, it's on that verse. Because the problem is, Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is he talking about there? The, the most natural reading of it is that he's talking about the second coming, what we call in technical theology the Parousia. And, you know, that's the, the coming in again in glory that we all say we believe is going to happen at the end of time when we recite the creed. Now, the problem is here we are 2,000 years later, and here he isn't. And I'm pretty sure all of the people. Standing there did in fact taste death roughly 2,000 years ago. So, was Jesus, well, talking about something else? Um, or was he mistaken? Or was he lying? Or is there some other way of understanding this verse? It has been suggested that when he speaks about coming in his kingdom, he's talking about his resurrection. And that's a possibility. There are others, um, somebody like Tom Wright, for example, the um, former Bishop of Durham, very famous New Testament writer, he would want to insist that this is about the fall of the temple in the year 70. And that, in the words of origin, is a bit much as an interpretation of this verse. And there's nothing obviously temple-fally, about what Christ says in this particular verse. St. Thomas Aquinas points out that the very next thing that happens, and we'll see this the next time I'm on, is the transfiguration. And so he suggests that at least part of what Christ is talking about here is that transfiguration. And of course, there are some standing there who don't taste death before they see it, namely, Peter, James, and his brother, John. Aquinas has this rather nice line, which I don't think we are bound to agree with, but which is fun. He says there's a clue to the fact that he's talking about the apostles because he says, taste death. And he says, people who are sinners don't taste death, but rather are swallowed up by death. It's only saints who taste death and then as it were, having tasted it, spit it out, and move on to eternal life because they're saints. And so that points to the fact that he's referring to Peter, James, and John. And then, as I say, the very next thing that happens is the transfiguration. I don't think that the transfiguration on its own is the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But what I do suggest, and we talk about this in our very fascinating book, which I will now plug, it's called When the Son of Man Didn't Come, available from all good Amazons. Um, We suggest that the transfiguration is one of the things that acts as a kind of down payment, a stepping stone, if you want to use a different metaphor, a stony metaphor, to the second coming. There are lots of different things that Christ gives his people to sustain us in our continued hope that he will in the fullness of time come in all his glory to bring the whole of this world to its final consummation. One of those things is indeed the transfiguration, more on that next month. One of them would be the resurrection undoubtedly, Another is Pentecost. Another, sure, is indeed the destruction of the temple in the year 70. We also talk about the way in which there is a much more regular stepping stone to the second coming, which is the Eucharist. Every time we go to the Eucharist, we do indeed see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom because the Christ who becomes present to us on the altar is simultaneously the Christ who was slain and rose 2000 years ago and the Christ who will come again in glory because the Eucharist is a memorial both of the past and of the future, which is why St. Paul is able to say um, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So it sort of joins us as it were like on a long line, both to that past profound moment of soteriological significance and to the end of time at one and the same time. Anyway, more on the transfiguration next month. Tim, have you remembered your question?
0: uh it's not that i i forgot it it's just that i think it needs perhaps a little bit of of formula but the what it was that i i, I was wondering if maybe there's insight from this undercovering of the word you know uh, rock and stone and scandalon et cetera, mm-hmm. where it says the the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone yes um and that you also have the passage where it says that you know christ is a a stumbling stone to the greeks yes Um, yes, i'm just i'm just starting to see all these other things where i wonder if there's there's more to be um to be seen in those of some kind of wordplay that uh, for lack of a better word um that perhaps i hadn't seen before without the greek
1: yes i think there is and and you know the other thing that came into my mind and this will be a passage that you'll know well i'm sure from psalm 91 is it um they shall bear you upon your hands lest you strike your foot against a stone mm. um this is I, I imagine uh the monks of mount st bernard and and other monasteries uh sing that psalm regularly at Compline, um, yeah. and and we certainly do in the dominican tradition um and that of course is is something that quoted to Jesus by satan in his temptations isn't it yeah. that the angels will bear you up so that you don't strike your foot against a stone but of course christ rejects that possibility he could have been protected from all the harms that befell him um even the minor irritation of knocking your stubbing your toe on a rock or something like that but he chose to undergo from the most trivial irritation of the the stone in your shoe or the stubbing of your toe, all the way up to the deepest, most degrading and horrific humiliation of the cross. And every other part of the human condition is something that Christ chose to experience. And that very fact is itself a cause of scandal. Hmm. Uh, Sometimes we talk about the scandal of particularity, the fact that Jesus became that man in that place at that time, it just seems so, as the young people would say, random, so (laughs) arbitrary. Why then? Why him? Why there? Why did he have to be that human being? Why did he have to undergo all of this mundanity, really? But it was precisely that choice, that choice of entering into the human condition in all of its particularity and in all of its mundanity and in all of its agonies and humiliations, that is the yes of God, which Christ represents in the incarnation. And it's that choice culminating in the cross, that yes of God, which is our salvation in christ
0: Mm. yeah wow well this makes me think of more questions but unfortunately we've we've run out of time so we'll have to continue the conversation next month
1: and wipe them down and ask (laughs) me them next
0: month (laughs) yes let's do that well thank you so much father richard it's it's always a pleasure always very very interesting and um next week chapter 17
1: not next week, next month.
0: Next week, no. next month. Next
1: month, yes. Next month, the transfiguration and other exciting things. I look forward to it indeed. Um, would you say a short prayer for us? To... With pleasure. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of your holy scriptures. We ask you to open our eyes to read them more clearly, our ears to hear them with more love and acceptance and understanding. And open our mouths that we may preach your holy word to all the people that we meet, so that your love and your truth may be known everywhere and bring all peoples to the salvation that we've received through our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Amen.